welcome back to another episode of I'm Coming Out, the podcast where well-known people tell me, Johnny Harvey, their coming out stories. And today's guest is Justin Myers. Justin first became known as a blogger using the pseudonym The Guy Liner. He is a columnist for British GQ and he also writes for The Huffington Post, The Gay Times and The Sunday Times. On his blog, he also reviews The Guardian Blind Dates, which I always look forward to every Saturday. His first novel, The Last Romeo, tells the story of one man's quest to find his one true love and was published in 2018 to widespread critical acclaim. His second novel is set for release next year. I really wanted to chat to Justin because I've followed his career for years now and I'm a huge fan of his writing. I found his novel, The Last Romeo, to be really funny and entertaining and I read the whole thing in one weekend. He has written about gay culture for years now and is incredibly smart, so I knew he would have some great insights on the coming out process. I met Justin at his publisher's offices in London and we chatted about how it felt to be the victim of homophobic bullying from teachers, the mental and physical abuse he endured throughout secondary school, his attempts to repress his sexuality and what it felt like when he finally did come out, how he still feels self-conscious wearing certain items of clothing in London and his best advice on how to react when someone comes out to you. We also talked about other LGBTQ issues such as internalised homophobia, and the rise of homophobic hate crime since Brexit. Please leave a rating or review on iTunes as it really helps me and it helps other people to discover the podcast. I hope you enjoy this episode and thanks for listening. Here it is. So I've been reading your blogs for years now and there was one article in particular which has really stayed with me. You were talking about what it felt like to be subjected to homophobic bullying from adults because we hear quite a bit all the time about what it's like to be subjected to homophobic bullying when it's coming from your peers. Mm. So I thought that was really interesting and I'll I'll just read out this quote from you now. I took it down last night because you articulated it really, really well, far better than I could have. Okay, thanks. So um, I expected bullying from other kids. It became another part of my day, like sharpening my pencil or queuing for lunch. But when adults joined in, it was extra depressing. The ultimate betrayal. So that's so well put, I think. Oh, that's so sad. Yeah. (laughs) It it is. But it captures it it really, really well. So can you tell me a little bit more about those experiences in particular? I mean, I suppose it takes a different form, doesn't it, when it's an adult pulling you up on your sexuality. But I do remember, because children are quite, are by their very nature, very juvenile. So their insults will be kind of basic and, you know, poof this and whatever. With adults, it was more of a, it was sneakier. So you would see something change in their face when they realised who or what you really were, even though you didn't know it yourself. This it started when I was very young with relatives. I would, wouldn't say they bullied me, but my, my effeminate nature and my quite obvious difference from other boys, especially in the family, was remarked upon. And then when I went to school, teachers would remark upon it. I had, I, I've talked about it before in my writing, but I 
I would say when it was at its peak was when I was in what you would call high school now and uh, I was about 13 you know between the ages of 13 and 16 and had a really horrible maths teacher who was a misogynist as well actually he was quite dismissive of girls but a colossal homophobe and the day after Freddie Mercury died I think if I remember rightly there was a huge news of the world spread on the Sunday about Freddie Mercury dying of uh, AIDS and the next day when I had maths the maths teacher I won't name him because I think he's still alive. He won't be listening. Uh, no, hopefully not. Um, he said in front of the entire class, Justin, I see your boyfriend is dead. And I was, uh, I was 15. Though, it? It's incredible. So and it, it, well, he wasn't the only one. And it was always a very... Well, I think what people forget about those days is that it was relatively normal to mock people for being gay you know the media was doing it and even though there was a, a sea change if you like it wasn't as verboten as it is now to openly comment on someone's sexuality or perceived sexuality because you know I was a virgin so I hadn't had sex and my experiences up to then have been pretty basic anyway but you know, there were other incidents like that from other teachers but I, I, I saw that you know teachers would always side with the popular kids so I never really felt yeah, they do. That's true. embraced by them yeah and it's something that people forget I think but it was something I was talking to on a related note it was something I was talking to someone about and they were saying to me that they'd recently met her child who they thought would grow up to be gay and one of the comments uh, she made was he was just so so polite he was so well spoken and so gentle and polite and I said yes gay children do that because they need adults to be on your side. And we're always taught by adults to mind your P's and Q's and be, you know, polite and graceful. And so he was trying to get you on side, trying to make you an ally. It's a defense mechanism yeah. for gay kids. Yeah, you want, you want a ch an adult to be sympathetic to you. And so you do the things that you think an adult wants you to do, which involve, you know, being well behaved and polite. And that's what I was like as a child. It didn't always work. For that to come from one of your maths teachers must have been really, really traumatic but I, I had no recourse obviously because it wasn't the kind of thing you told anyone about everyone laughed in the class and I sat down and did my maths. Yeah, I mean, if, if it was about you being overweight or some other issue, you could go home and tell maybe your parents about it. I don't know. Or it was 1991. I don't think I would have done. No, I told my mum about that really relatively recently within the last five years. And she was absolutely horrified. Yeah, and those memories, they really stay with you, don't they? Yeah, I, I think about it a lot. Yeah, yeah, it's understandable. But you mentioned there um, during the 80s and 90s, the media in Britain were incredibly homophobic. Yeah. And Clause 28, was introduced around late 80s yeah. also. So were you aware yourself at that young age of the level of hostility that existed towards the gay community? And if so, did it? how did it affect you? Yes, I was. I, I, I was born at the very end of 1975. So I was, you know, I think Clause 28 came in in 1988. Yeah. I remember Boy George having that protest record around that time. So I was 12. And I definitely noticed the demonization of gay men, especially lesbians to a certain degree, but it was always with a very, you know, that old cliche, a black militant one-legged lesbian. You know, it was, uh, lesbians were never seen as a, as a sexual threat, but more of a, a joke. Whereas gay men were demonized because obviously gay sex was very frightening and uh, to uh, straight people. And we were seen as, you know, recruiting children and, you know, dying of a filthy disease and that kind of thing. So for me growing up, it did have an effect because it 100% kept me in the closet much longer than it needed to have done. And I, I, it made me, I think, reject 
you know, what could have been a certain path for me. I, I was embarrassed by gay celebrities. I would leave the room when if they were, you know, potentially homosexual scenes in, in films or on television. Not that there was even any kind of representation that was positive in the 80s anyway. I would be very, very embarrassed by it. So yeah, and I would obviously um, worry that that was what lay in store for me, basically a society that did not want me around. I'm very lucky that I was born just a few years later because I was I missed all the vitriol during the 80s and I wasn't yeah. I can remember the tail end of the 80s but I can't remember what was happening yeah. news wise or current affairs and I'm only starting to read now and see the headlines and the articles and it's really really shocking it's insane yeah you know and I was from a I am from a working class family so we had I mean my mum didn't buy the tabloids we had the local paper but you know the sun and the mirror they were around they, they, they were around me it was we, we moved in circles where the people who would read that kind of propaganda were around me yeah they were the biggest still are the biggest newspapers in the country yeah exactly and not by accident so what was it like growing up in Yorkshire in the 80s I mean I have nothing to compare it to so I can only assume it was merely the location that was different and that for children like me it was the same wherever they were. I suppose the town I am from is just outside Bradford and it is not that small, it's, it's, it's sizeable but it, it has a very uh, small feel to it. And Yorkshire, how can I put this? I suppose you know, I didn't see a lot of people like me. I, di I didn't know what I was at that point anyway. I didn't really understand what it was, but I knew that I was outside the norm. And I, I think I've said this before, but I often felt like an alien that had been dropped there. I, I, I felt I could see things that no one else could see on the, and that I thought things that no one else thought and that I, I suppose in a way, knew that I didn't belong there. Whether that was related to Yorkshire or just the situation in general, I don't know. You, you know, Yorkshire has a reputation for being a very no-nonsense, masculine, I guess, sharp place to, to live. And it, it is all of those things, but, you know, also it has a strong women, a st very strong matriarchal feel to it. And you've written in your blogs about the homophobic bullying you encountered during your school days. Mm. So can you tell me a bit more about that and what form the bullying took. Sorry, these are all really painful questions to ask someone. Oh, I mean, I'm, I'm old. I'm an old man now, so it's fine. I'm over it. No, you're in your mind. Um, it was continual and consistent and uh, very rarely creative, to be honest. I almost feel sorry for them now, looking back at how boring their bullying was. It wasn't often... Sorry, it wasn't always violent, but it definitely had a threatening undertone. So it would be things like I had to, to get a special bus to school every day because I was on I was from a single parent family so I got free travel to school but I had to travel on a certain bus which was a nightmare because uh, people got on that bus who just loved to kick my head in so I would not get attacked every day on the bus but there'd be a name calling incident so I'd have to keep myself to myself very much edit myself and keep withdrawn and it was a relief actually to start smoking when I was 15 because then I would go upstairs and sit with the girls girls were on the top deck boys were on the bottom deck so I started smoking and sat upstairs with the girls uh, and that was a level of protection only one other boy would come up and, uh, and smoke with us and he wasn't interested in bullying me at all but I would walk home from school in the evening to avoid getting on the bus because obviously 
because school was over, it would be worse. So I was attacked quite often on the bus going home. Um, I had a couple of regular bullies who every time they saw me would make a comment or do something violent. Um, one of them is dead now. And th there would be other, you know, I, I don't know, I spent a lot of time kind of trying not to be upset about it and just keeping myself to myself and ignoring things and trying not to break because once they saw that they'd broken you, then it wouldn't make it better, it would make it worse and never really telling any teachers. And it was always a, you know, horrifying if a teacher happened to catch it and would bring it up and, you know, and would begin to um, castigate the bully because that would just make things worse for me. But there was one day when one of the regular bullies I used to see around school started getting on my bus in the morning and he leathered the shit out of me on the way to school and I just felt so dispirited. It was a Wednesday, I'll never forget. And I went and sat in, we had a, you know, a tutor room that you would, be taken register and then you would go off to different parts of the building. I think I was 14, 15. And the hopelessness of it, and I'd never broken before, and I just started crying because I thought this is gonna happen now every single day and there is no escape. I'm never gonna be able to get away from this. And I went to the, I was taken to the, to the year heads and, oh, I wish I had a happy ending for this story, but nothing was done. He just was told never to get my boss again. So all the leathering that he would have done to me on the bus every day, hear, he did it? He did in a dark corner of the school instead if he caught me. Isn't that awful that an adult whose job is to protect children yeah. just did nothing? Unfortunately, the school has closed down and has been demolished last year and a new school is in its place. Otherwise, I would have loved to have named and shamed every single one of them, but there's no point now. That must have been a sign that it was demolished. Yeah, I, 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 I said on Twitter when I, when I found out it had been demolished, I wish I'd been on the front of the JCB with, I don't know, a feather boa. You've been there to witness it. I'd have loved to have seen that. Well, you've really been through it, haven't you? You've got a really oh, tough and the weird, the weird thing about it is that I don't think about it that often, and then I remember, and I'm like, wow, I can't believe I went to school every day, let alone passed my exams and got the hell out of there. It even carried on into sixth form, which is, you know, assumed to be a much more liberal, laid-back... I was thinking about this on the way here because I had a feeling you would ask me about this. You know, there was a guy who used to stick knives into my locker in the common room and write stuff on it. <laughs> it's so random. Of, did you ever think of calling the police? No, it wasn't. A, just that just was never a consideration. But it was, you know, I think when you when you think of beaten up now, you know, when you think of you know being violently, you know, abused or whatever, homophobically. I don't know. Then it was just, you know a punch, a dead arm every time I went past them. So it's not really being beaten up, but then you feel, you realize how accumulative that is. Like literally every time I went past Julian, he would give me a dead arm, you know, every time. So it could be once a day, it could be five times a day, it didn't matter. Or he would try to trip me up or push me into a wall every single day. What on earth would I have said to the police? They would have laughed me out of the station. Yeah, they would have done Because it was the well. 90s, they, yeah, they wouldn't have cared. No, yeah. absolutely not. But it's so hard at that age and you don't have anyone to share those experiences with or else you might... Um, no, I had nobody. Yourself. And also, you know, what it's worth remembering is that at that age, children distanced themselves from... In that period, it may be different now. Children distanced themselves from the bullying victims because they don't want to be caught up in it or they don't want to be tainted with... Uh, maybe they'll think I'm gay too. In fact, I'm rambling, but... Um, no, no. A few years ago, I bumped into an old school friend who now lives in London, and, uh, you know, he used to literally walk off whistling if anything happened to me or just kind of, you know, ignore it. And he told me he was gay too, and I hadn't noticed. And I felt like saying, well, why didn't you do something then or help me? But then I understood, of course, and I probably would have done the same. 
he would have been in the same boat then. He could yeah. have become the target. But he, 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 for some reason, escaped it. I think I knew of a few gay guys like that as well who would kind of side with maybe the bullies. They wouldn't always be supportive of one another. Mm. But um, there's some pretty traumatic experiences. I guess. Yeah. So what's your relationship with your hometown now? I'm encouraged when I go back and I see, you know, younger gay or trans people kind of, you know, living out there visibly uh, in, in my hometown. There's not many, but I do see them sometimes or, you know, the surrounding cities. I like to think things are changing. I have a much younger sister and she, uh, you know, has a gay friend and I think he's had a much nicer time than I did and I'm glad about that. Yeah, it's nice when you see progress. Yeah, maybe it's got its act together, but I'm not going to hold my breath. And when you started to realise, when you started to begin to realise that you were gay, how did you feel about it? Were you accepting of it or did you fight against it? I don't know if I ever really realised it uh, while I was growing up. I don't know. I knew there was something, but I couldn't put my finger on it. And I remember being lying in bed probably in my early teens, maybe a bit younger, and realising that, you know, because my parents got married when they were 20, and realising how many years away I was from that, and would that mean I would get married to a woman, and what would that, excuse me, what would that be like? And um, I didn't, I couldn't imagine it, I couldn't picture it happening, but I didn't know what the alternative was. I realised that I had, uh, I was physically attracted to men, but I told myself I was also physically attracted to women too. I don't know whether I was at that point or not, but I, I decided to repress it and hope it would work itself out. Did you have girlfriends during that time? Or? At school, like a couple, but nothing. It was all very chaste. There was nothing, literally nothing going on. At university, yes, a couple of girlfriends and sex with women, yeah. So you went through a period of confusion? Uh, or was more repressing it? Repressing it, I would say. I, I, was, I wasn't confused in that I just did not think I was gay. And so, and when did you come to terms with it. Still working on it. <laughs> uh, no, I mean, I, I I, think with some people, I think some people are, you know, they accept their sexuality before it's a sexual thing. You know, that's why you get gay children or children who present as gay or, you know, and you, you get people coming out now way before their sexual maturity because they just know. So that's, that's great for them. And I think for some people though, it takes meeting the right person or having the right experience. And I would say I had dabbled but I was about 24 when I met person and had an experience that made it all make sense for me. And so when did you officially come out or did you do it gradually over time or? What's officially? As in? Who needs to be told before it's official? The most important people in your life. Well, well, who were they? Okay, I think summer 2000, I, I admitted that. It was a great summer. I admitted I admitted that I was 24 and I admitted that and I think I phoned my best friend who still lived in Yorkshire at the time and I said that and she obviously, she knew it, she'd known all along. You know, we'd had a couple of discussions about it over the years and I'd said to her when I was 18, six years earlier, that I thought I might be bi because I had an experience with a guy but I didn't really like it. And then I backtracked. I rolled back on that, backpedaled furiously on that and did, almost denied that that conversation had ever happened. So she was, she was thrilled for me, uh, I would say. Then I told my dad in an argument and I told my mum because I'd moved to London with my boyfriend and it felt wrong that she didn't know. So I suppose mum made it official, official. I was out to friends. 
before then. Yeah. But yeah, I suppose that that was the that was the moment when this is it. There's definitely no going back. And it would have been quite hard around that time. Still in 2000, when you think back, there wasn't much gay representation out there, really. Well, I was very lucky in that I lived in Edinburgh at the time, which has had then anyway, and probably still has an amazing, thriving, quite small and protective gay scene. So I did not feel alone. But yeah, it was very still. I mean, civil partnerships hadn't even come in then, so there was not not really a lot happening on the old gay rights front. And so how did you feel after coming out? I think it's a bit of a feeling like you... I think when you admit anything to yourself, whether it's your sexuality or that the job you have is not right for you or that the person you're with is not right for you, that kind of watershed moment when you're like, and now that I have admitted that, I can start working on it. So obviously for me, admitting to myself I was gay and, and coming out to people, that meant I could now go and explore. And so I felt, I guess, a little bit excited. I mean, there were, there were, it was not a very clean transition. There were some quite horrible moments. I had a homophobic boss at the time, which did not help. I was still a little bit unsure of how to play things because I had never been in relationships with men before. I'd never, you know, kind of done that, not necessarily a courtship but I didn't know how to flirt with the guy yeah it was it was I was ridiculous it was terrible but I got there in the end now you're an expert in that area aren't you mm. gay dating um no comment no comment <laughs> so when you, you came out were, did you what were your first impressions of the gay scene going out and well there's that period when you first come out where you have that kind of well not everyone but it's it's not uncommon where you have that kind of revulsion and rejection and you know I'm not like the others and you say oh you know I'm one of those I didn't I never said this but I knew people who said this you know I'm one of those gay who's also kind of a little bit homophobic so I don't like this kind of gay and that kind of gay yeah yeah it's sad but it's understandable in a way internalized homophobia is it's a hell of a drug and you have to come off it sooner or later and thankfully i think my period doing that was brief so I, I, I found it just a little bit, I I'm, I'm, was not quite comfortable in my own skin for a while, but I embraced it as much as I was ready to and just went with it really. Just on that note about internalised homophobia, because mm. you do the Guardian dating commentary, and I think two weeks ago there was one date that I was very taken aback by. It mm. didn't go uh, very well. So one of the guys said that he was looking for a quote-unquote a straight acting uh, date, so obviously internalized homophobia is rampant in the gay community and yeah. especially on dating apps. But I was just I was very, very shocked to see it in a national newspaper and to see somebody be so brazen about it. Were you shocked to see that? Are you shocked to see that in a national newspaper? I was, yeah. I couldn't believe somebody would say that so openly and as if it was acceptable. Lots of men think it. Yeah, think it, but don't say it. Yeah, I guess. So th that was an interesting one because I was not online that day. I can't remember why. I think I'd resolved to take a day off or I was busy working or something. And I wasn't going to review the blind date at all that day. And then I saw that and my Twitter mentions were absolutely full of people saying to me, you know, in, in not in so many words, savage this man. And I thought, wow, what, a, what an interesting reaction from the crowd. And, you know, no, I'm not going to do that. What was sad about that was that, first of all, Josh was saying what a lot of men think. And was it unfortunate that he'd said it in a magazine column in a national newspaper read by thousands of people? And also a column that he may or may not have known is usually subject to some kind of grilling by a writer. Yes, it's unfortunate. But it was interesting that what it exposed. It brought out so much anger in people. And I think he was just a... 
you know, a product of his um, surroundings. I think there are lots of gay men who think that and they say it, but no, they don't say it in a magazine. The straight acting thing, it's a very old fashioned term now, actually. It's been kind of sidelined by mask, mask for mask, hasn't it? Which is exactly the same thing. Exactly the same thing, but because it's a hashtag and it's kind of almost complimenting, it's like masculinity is kind of, straight acting is weird, isn't it? Because you're trying to emulate or you're trying, no, sorry. Straight acting is weird because you're trying to imitate and you are trying to um, latch onto something that does not belong to you and you're trying to disguise yourself. Whereas mask for mask is uh, recognizing these attributes that you either feel you have or that you find attractive. And it's almost a compliment. We still, you know, I go to most gay men and say, oh, you're so masculine. And most of them will be very happy or, you know, you, you wouldn't know you were gay. They'd be, they'd be thrilled with that. That's quite sad. People don't tend to say that to me much anymore, but that's okay. So it was very interesting that he'd chosen that phrase because I think if he'd said someone masculine, not many people would have batted an eye. He did also say further down that he thought his date, Freddie, was feminine. And I assume he meant effeminate by that. And there was an outcry about that as well because he was somehow insulting Freddie by calling him feminine. And it's more the fact that he remarked upon it that was a bit dodgy. I suppose it's understandable in a way when you do grow up in such a homophobic world yeah. that you are going to assimilate some of the, those messages yourself. Yeah. I think, you've, you know, you fancy who you fancy. So you may well, in your head, think you could never be attracted to somebody, to a man who showed uh, feminine traits. Maybe that's true. But I, I, as I think I said in my write-up, you know, you are dismissing a whole swathe of men who you could get to know and really be interested in. And this fetishization of, of masculine men isn't really doing anybody any good because, first of all, there probably aren't enough to go around. And not for all of them, but for, for some of these men, it's, it's not real anyway. And they, you know, are they, are they acting masculine because they think that's what attracts men? And are they hiding a part of themselves away from you because they know you only fancy masculine men? There are so many layers of it and levels and, you know, all sorts of stuff to unpick that I feel that kind of preference, it's only a preference, it's quite a dangerous one to have because I wonder what effect it is having not only on the person who has the preference, but the, the object of it. Yeah, because it can often be a mask. Yeah, ma- the mask mask. Yeah. You know, playing a role, is that what we really want to do? Must be pretty exhausting. And then just some, some of the straight acting guys, they kind of do let their guard down from time to time and you get glimpses of somebody else. Yeah, I mean, without, you know, when I was single and dating, straight acting was still around. That was a thing that people would say in their dating profiles. Not Not always, but sometimes they would. And... How can I put it? I would turn up on these dates and think, why have you said that? Because you're not straight acting in the, in the sense that you think you are. What do you mean straight acting anyway? You're not drinking a cocktail. You're not wearing something pink. What are you really trying to say? Are you trying to say that you are not effeminate? Because, you know, obviously being feminine, femininity is so, you know, undesirable and that kind of thing. I, 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 I you know, I sometimes felt it was a, a net or a, a trap to lure men in. And um, 
I never went on a date with somebody because they said they were straight acting, but if they'd said they were, I guess I was expecting them to be, be a certain way when I arrived. So when I found they weren't, I wasn't disappointed that they weren't straight acting, but I was a bit disappointed in that they tried to represent themselves as something they weren't to get men in. And I wondered if they thought I was only there because I thought they were straight acting. You see what I mean? This is like, it's a nightmare. Yeah, I It's like a man trying to work out a magic eye painting. There are too many, it's, it's just never as simple as internalised homophobia, he's, he's wrong for saying that. There is so much going on under the surface that rather than slate someone for saying they prefer straight acting guys, I would rather try and understand it. However, if by expressing that preference they're making someone else feel like shit, then that should be called out, of course. Yeah, it's a really complex yeah. issue. Uh, just you mentioned there about uh, clothes and you've written in the past about how you feel self-conscious where uh, sometimes wearing certain clothes mm. such as I think there was one blog you were writing about your pink trainers or your purple shorts and some of mm. them gain a bit of a, a response so I find that interesting that that, that happens that you would feel s self-conscious even living somewhere like London which is supposedly super liberal and open-minded yeah, I suppose it depends where you live in London. I, I was thinking about this and it seems to me that you can wear whatever you want. Yes, you can wear whatever you want in London, but not if you are obviously gay. Like you see a lot of that, I mean, you know, quite a lot of the chain stores now have very, what would we, what would we say unisex now? Clothes. Unisex or metrosexual or I don't know, you know, a lot of the trends now are very bright and but you know the kind of the very short shorts and you know um, shirts open with muscles popping out and everything very tight to show body definition when I was growing up they would have been seen as very traditionally yeah. gay clothes and I think the rules are different so if you know if a man wears those and goes on Love Island no one would question his masculinity or sexuality at all but if I were walking down the street wearing them, and I have worn short shorts in my day, and they're back in this year, by the way, they're a big trend, I would feel self-conscious because the rules are different. My my boyfriend has a, a really nice pink shirt that's got like palm prints on it. It's, it's from a chain store, you know, and it's it, widely available, so it's not like it's something that you would not see around every day. And a couple of times, you know, when he wears it, he gets looks, and one time he overheard a group of lads uh, shouting at him Freddie Mercury he's got dark hair oh okay um, and you know because they made the connection with pink shirt famous gay guy dark hair Freddie Mercury that's uh, as you said earlier on not very creative in yeah well, yeah I mean you know I feel for them really it's 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 a dull, uh, dull world, uh, the world of heterosexual homophobic insults. But just little things like that and I, I, as I said before in my writing I have a thing for pink trainers uh, and when I wear them, people always comment on them. Well, they're very pink, is the most common one. Yes, because they're pink. But people look at them, sometimes because they like them. You know, I see, you can always tell a, a, you know, a sneaker head when they look at your trainers. But sometimes it's, oh, you know. And I think, yeah, I, I you know, maybe it is all in my head, but there's definitely some things I'm wearing that I feel more self-conscious, that I think a straight guy would not, because straight men, not all straight men, not all men, they have that innate confidence and knowledge that, to a certain extent, the world belongs to them. And do you still feel that you have to suppress, suppress parts of 
yourself what, I mean, in terms I'm, of clothes and I'm going to be I'm going to be honest here in that you know my dress sense isn't exactly out there but you know I do have a few pants from time to time from time to time you know I, I'm, I'm, I'm quite a conservative dresser anyway but just because according to my best friend's mother I'm a winter so two bright co- clothes would clash with my skin tone and hair oh, okay. colour does she work in that area or no just yeah. one of those know-it-alls oh. uh, I mean that very affectionately But yeah, there's a lot of self-editing that goes on, you know, um, something as simple as not walking too close to my partner. Uh, You know, we have seen people spring back from us seeing us walking through uh, Westfield. Literally, you know, people clock that we're a gay couple and kind of react. It's 2019. In fact, when people say, oh, but it's 2019, this shouldn't be happening. What does that even mean that it's 2019? Because... It's just a number, and believe me, bigots know no calendar. It's still very much there. The, of course, the it is. It's just that it's it's not as acceptable to say it out loud anymore. It doesn't mean it's gone anywhere. Yeah, there's still a, a lot of work to be done. Loads. So you recently wrote about how you experienced some homophobic abuse whilst on the way to, to the tube here in London, mm. and I read in the papers that there's been an increase in homophobic hate crime since Brexit. So would you agree with that yourself? Does that does it seem that way to you? There have been a few incidents, definitely, uh, since Brexit. I can't speak for everyone, but I have had, you know, I would say for a while it was unusual for incidents to happen. There'd be the odd look or a sneer, you know what I mean, or something like that, or a feeling. I've had feelings before. Um, where I don't feel particularly safe. But I suppose it goes hand in hand. So there, there probably is an increased sense of uh, you know, homophobia around. There probably have been increased uh, homophobic attacks. But there's also an increased feeling of unease among LGBTQ people because of that. Because Brexit, it's, you know, the Brexit vote itself has opened a lot of doors that we knew what was behind, behind them, but we either didn't open them or they were very firmly locked lots of door analogies happening but they've been thrown open and people are expressing themselves much more directly and uh, with greater aggression I think I think this has always been there but I think there's something in the the referendum that has unlocked you know something in the British psyche that's made it acceptable to say these things yeah it seems to have given a lot of bigots a voice they're more confident in what they think and what they believe and they feel it's more acceptable to be open about those beliefs. Yeah, and they're being backed up by, like, people in high places. Certain politicians, yeah. Yeah. When you think about where we were not that long ago with marriage equality coming in, you know, something that... You know, I don't. I don't think the Conservatives did that because they care about LGBTQ people particularly, but, you know, that was just... Whatever, whatever reason they had, I'm glad they did it. And now here we have MPs from the same party going on television saying that there shouldn't be any, you know, mention of LGBTQ relationships in schools, that kind of thing, playing to the bigots. And for a very brief period where the bigots were not taken on, they were not listened to, they were they were wrong. And it was vocally admitted, you know, it was said, it was people were vocal about them being wrong. And now we're getting to this, gotta see both sides, and now people playing to that gallery because of the result of the referendum, I suppose. Yeah, I think it was Esther McVeigh, she's a Tory she MP, is. and I think Andrea Letsom. Yeah. They're both against the LGBT education in primary schools, mm. aren't they? Yes. Yeah, <clears throat> the Tories have quite a track record when it comes in to... In a way, it is a relief community. In a way it's a relief for them to be showing their true colours again because it was a very it was very strange period when they were pretending they 
cared. You didn't buy it? No, I didn't. I wrote about it at the time that it was just a sop, really. Um, but, yeah. I loved your book, by the way. I finished it last weekend. Oh, thanks. I read it in, in one weekend. Uh, and one of the lead characters in the book is a closeted celebrity. Yes. So why did you want to explore the coming out process from the celebrity perspective? Well, I find it fascinating. You know, I've, I've been an online person for, for, well, nearly 20 years now. You know, I was very much online in the, in the early days. So I find internet reactions to things fascinating. So I took a lot of inspiration from various uh, celebrity coming outs that happened leading up to that. And actually during when I was writing the book, more came out. Uh, Tom Daly's coming out I thought was really interesting. I thought also back to the coming outs of people like Stephen Gately and Will Young, how they were kind of forced to come out in a tabloid because basically the tabloid will have phoned them and said, we know you're gay, so either come and play nice and do an interview with us or we'll splash with whatever we've got. And I, I wanted to explore how things had changed. And I think when you view something through the eye of celebrity, you can maybe say things about attitudes that maybe wouldn't have had much as an impact if it were about a normal person. And also I wanted the main character in the book to be already out and that not to be an issue with him and yet for the issue to be with other people. So the, the closeted celebrity in the book is an Olympic athlete, which, you know, there's a lot of discussion around uh, closeted sportsmen and, you know, how difficult it is to come out, you know, no gay footballers and that kind of thing. So I, I really wanted to um, talk about that kind of homophobic area that makes it difficult for those kind of people to come out. And also I wanted to tackle the, uh, you know, the internet reaction to coming out. We already knew you'd never have known or, um, you know, embracing it or rejecting it. I wanted to, um, I really wanted to explore how you would maybe manage a, a coming out. And while I was doing the very last edits of the book, like literally it was nearly finished and I was just doing the last finishing touches. A former Olympic athlete came out. It was great. Which uh, was Colin that? Jackson. Oh yes. So I was like, wow. And it's felt current. So yeah, I just wanted to explore that. I'm fascinated by digital culture and, um, the, the internet's role in things and that's why I wanted to explore that. Colin Jackson, I'm trying to put a face to the name. I think I, I think I know I think guy. oh I think he was a hurdler. This is terrible. I should have I, I should I should have thought that. Hurdler. I'm gonna say hurdler. Ageism and body image, they're <laughs> reoccurring themes in the book. Yes. So why did you want to touch on them? Was that intentional or well, I, I, when I was writing the book, I was 40. So, you know, that's quite old in the, in the gay world, you know, practically dead. And it's something I see a lot of ageism out there, whether it's against, you know, uh, gay people or, you know, uh, straight women or any woman, really. So, yeah, I wanted to get that in there because the late lead character is 34 and starting to have a few doubts about where he fits in and what is a very youth, what can be a very youth-oriented Scene. And also he has a colleague who is, I think, a decade younger than him and is age they're ageist against each other, really. It's it's the thing about the Blast Romeo is that the ageism goes both ways. So James, the lead character, dismisses Hurley, his young colleague, because he thinks he's an idiot, because he's twenty-three and he's a YouTuber and he's, you know, he's just kind of coasting. Whereas Hurley, the younger guy, thinks that James at thirty-four is old and a bit of a failure and kind of not going anywhere and doesn't want to be anything like him. So it's, I, what I really wanted to explore was the misunderstandings between generations and how pointless they are and how harmful they are because neither 
James nor Hurley seem to be benefiting at all from this ageist rubbish they're flinging at each other. And what's your best advice you have for someone whose friend or if a member of your family comes out to you? So if you're on the receiving end of coming out, Mm -hmm. how should you respond? Okay, try really hard not to say that you already knew, even if you did, even if it's been so obvious, even if when you hear all you hear when you hear them speak is gay, 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 gay. Don't just try not to. Uh, Instead, say that you are glad they told you because it's very likely that it will be a big thing for them. And when they ask you, did you know? Don't lie. If you know, say, you know, that you, yeah, you probably had an idea, but you were working, you were waiting for them to work themselves out. You didn't want to say anything, didn't want to make them uncomfortable and that you're glad that they've told you. I think hearing, when someone, you tell someone that you're gay, that when you come out, hearing that, you know, that it's good news and that they're pleased that you've confided in them and that, you know, that they will be a, a willing ear is much more useful than, I knew, Leo, it's fine, it's great, this is great news. It's kind of, you know, you just want to hear that that person is listening to you properly. Yeah, that's pretty good advice because people usually don't know how to react or they say the wrong thing. Yeah, it's would, a moment you always remember as well. It is, but I, what I would say actually, because I've, I've kind of touched on this before, and I would say that a lot of people, a lot of gay people do find comfort in people telling them that they already knew. But I would advise waiting until they ask you. That's all. I already knew. God, it was so obvious because there's so many ways to say that wrongly that just wait for them to ask. Just say just say that you're pleased they told you and that it's going to be fine. And also, actually, um, ask them who else they've told because you may not be the first. And if you're not the first, ask them how that went because they may want to talk about that and they've not been able to talk about that to anyone else. But if you are the first, you're allowed to be happy about it. Yay! Yeah, that's a huge honour, isn't it? It is. It absolutely is. Justin, thank you so much for your time today. Thank you very uh, much. I'm looking forward to the, the next book. When's it out? Second book, probably early 2020. So Okay, so... That's next year. It sounds like it's 100 years in the future. I've forgotten what year it was. Okay, it's, so it's 2019. Yeah. So, <laughs> 2020. Yes. So, in the year then. Yes, should yes, be. Yes, cool. I'm looking forward to it. And yeah, thanks for your time today, Justin. Thank you.